Warning. The following podcast may cause you to change your understanding of what it really means to be a human being. Side effects may range from a minor loss to complete annihilation of ego, a feeling of merging with something bigger than previously conceived, and a deep, abiding peace. Please, continue at mortal risk to yourself as a separate entity. Welcome. Enjoy. Greetings, 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 all one time. Live listeners, thanks for listening and once again welcome to another episode of all one time live this is episode 35 the fifth moonly check-in with chris moraski stone age skills expert in north america currently leading a group of 12 students on a year-long immersive experience learning the stone age skills needed to survive in the wild culminating in a 500 mile dugout canoe journey down the yellowstone river Uh, we check in as much as possible at each full moon however uh, this past full moon was going to be the beginning of a wandering with the group so we had to delay this episode uh interview a bit and chris talks a little bit about that uh, during this conversation This is sort of a a three-part conversation. Uh, The first part, we talk about our relationship with information and our understanding of truth relative to that and how we can so easily get caught in a web of seeming connections that may not be actual factual and uh, and how that might distort our perception of reality, however mightily we may want to cling to it. And and what it takes perhaps to uh, allow ourselves to loosen our, our grip on that distortion of misinformation and allow new information to come in and uh, correct our understanding of what is, which will always be imperfect and incomplete. Um, but hopefully the, the best to the best of our ability, given the best information that we have availability to in our own discernment, not just with our heart, but with our intellect uh, to determine what is a matter of fact and what may be a false connection of a constellation of actual valid points of information or perhaps even uh, made up nonsense so the heart and the mind enter into that and then we we so smoothly segue into uh, looking back on the the very interesting exciting wandering experience that Chris and his students had uh, during that time beginning just after the full moon and the lessons learned from there and that goes into a conversation uh, about anger as a component of our human experience and and how it may be uh, or may not be useful depending on the situation and who we are and how we understand it and are connected to it and uh, yeah more or less 
this is the the outline of our conversation. I loved this conversation. I, I felt it was the most uh, unique, uniquely personal um, feeling one so far. Not that to say that the others have at all felt impersonal, but this really did start to, to connect on those those smaller, more intricate. Uh, oh, there's a term I heard recently that I thought was really neat. Um, intimate enormity that that we share in our in our human experience venn diagrams so i hope you enjoy it as always if you have comments questions uh things you'd like to hear more about dive deeper into uh things you like or don't like i'm happy to receive any and all of those reflections at all one time live at gmail.com And I really look forward to continuing uh, touching base with Chris and his group as they continue on a a very exciting, exhilarating, and challenging adventure of life. Uh, And for all its its moments of uh, perhaps stretches of what will I do uh, in this moment to, oh my gosh, I absolutely have to get this fire going in these wet conditions or or whatever it is um there's a lot that is packed into this experience especially in our uh 21st century life to be reconnecting with the old ways the ancient ways and understanding uh, anew our connection to this planet and the elements and the things that keep us alive including our connection to each other which is a primary component of what it is to be human and a successful human and hopefully in the future a successful society on this planet that survives itself and realizes a a whole new better way of living together so as always in joy enjoy and uh, without further ado here you go chris moraski Hello. Hey, my friend. Hello hey, from hey. wintry Montana. It must be wintry there too, eh? Yeah, it's wonderfully wintry here. We've got some good snow. It's been like in the teens or so Fahrenheit wise, minus 11 Celsius. I've got a dog humping our couch right now. He, Excellent. He's, trying, he's trying to make some pillows <laughs> for us, I think. <laughs> Um, uh, they're always so helpful dogs yeah yeah always redecorating <laughs> doggy style uh, um yeah and you just got back from a little adventure wandering around yeah we did we did yeah that's one of the things that i wanted to chat about today is uh the snowy adventure that we went on and then i also have been thinking about uh those things that we know to be true but actually are not and a little bit on anger also cool and so, actually uh, that's yeah, great be because fun to chat about i i and i'm having some weird technical issues on my end here I'm, I'm glad that everything was able to come up so far so good uh but just a forewarning if something goes weird it's probably on my end um i would love to talk about if it if it fits well in any of those areas but especially about anger um learning to to experience the world through our heart instead of our head to, to try to like sort of activate that, that muscle of, um, of seeing and perception and understanding. And I see your microphone is on mute at the moment. If you did that on purpose, that's cool. Otherwise, uh, 
If you're going to start talking, I might not hear you. Uh, I got this new phone and uh, <laughs> I am not sure how well this is going to work out here. Uh, let me just take a look and see if there's a different thing. It's got a button on here that says tap to speak. And that would be annoying if I have to do that every time. Uh-huh. Congratulations uh, on the new phone. <laughs> thanks. Possibly. It's always like one of these. Uh, hopefully this is going to like hold it and my voice is going to come through uh, steadily here and consistently, uh, steadily and consistently, not to uh, say the same thing and be redundant. <laughs> um, so, yeah, uh, why don't we talk first then? Because I have an apology for uh, for you and for any of the other listeners. I've been talking about this concept that um, we are using a, a Roman calendar and that uh, an indigenous way of looking at things is to follow the moons. And we have 13 moons in a year and uh, a lunar cycle is 28 days, yeah. which okay, syncs up with... Um, you're gone again. It, I have the little red microphone with a slash through it on your side. <laughs> but I got as far as uh, the 28-day lunar cycle, but you are on mute currently. Okay. Right, you're back. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just hold my phone away from my face and um oh, yeah yeah so I, i'm looking at this now there's a safe driving mode which is really helpful as i'm sitting in my chair i feel very yeah, safe good inside of my yurt uh hey but, fa uh, fasten anyway. your uh your seat belt or whatever you have there. <laughs> we'll make it work this way so have you been able to hear everything i've said so far uh yeah well uh yeah, yeah, as far as I know, um, you got up to uh, talking about the length of the lunar cycle being 28 days before you cut out. Right, right. So um, indigenous calendar, 13 moons, lunar cycle, 28 days. And that corresponds with the average menstrual cycle for a woman to also be 28 days. Mm -hmm. And it turns out um, a whole bunch of that is absolutely false. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I hadn't, you know, dug into it because this is what I've always been told. Right. This is what I knew from my environment, from everything that, that I've just sort of passively taken in. And uh, so I, I did some checking on that. And it turns out that the average, uh, not the average, but the, the lunar cycle is 29.5 days. Mm-hmm. Now, if you multiply 29.5 times 13, you don't come anywhere near 365 days. And that is the foundational problem with going off of a lunar calendar is it doesn't sync up with the solar calendar. And so things shift, you know, things like each moon doesn't precisely correspond to what's happening in the world, you know, what's happening in your environment, um, how the seasons are shifting. And um, 
And so it, it works from an indigenous perspective to still have these particular moons be called particular things and to have sort of a relative understanding of, you know, this is when the geese leave, this is when they return, this is when, um, you know, the, the cottonwood trees begin to bud. And yet what we actually have as a way of, of governing our, our, our movement patterns and what we're foraging and, and how we're planning for the future is relational as opposed to something you read off of a calendar. It's not based on a date. It's based on, well, we're, we're, uh, we're seeing the cottonwood trees budding out at the same time that we're looking for morel mushrooms, you know, and, mm -hmm. and this uh, flower that's blooming. And when you put all of those things together, then you know what's happening, you know, uh, 50 miles away up the mountainside. It's all relational rather than uh, following, following numbers on a page. Yes, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I and, like that we've got these um, uh, different cycles. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and then I, you know, and then I was kind of curious. I looked up um, what is actually the average length of uh, a woman's menses. And, um, and as it turns out, it's not 28 days either. So there was a study that was done of 600,000 menstrual cycles. And what they found is, yes, there's a big range. And 28 days is roughly in the middle of that. But the actual average, 29.3 days. Oh. That's great. That's, <laughs> that's wonderful. So, you know, almost, almost perfectly lining up with the lunar cycle. Yeah. Um, and different from everything I've ever heard. Yeah. Goddesses. And then, you know, that just leads me into, especially in this time of conspiracy theories and QAnon and, um, and deep fakes and all of the, uh, all of the things that we see and we can kind of verify with our with our eyes and uh, the videos that we can see that we can verify with our hearing as well and and how that isn't necessarily accurate. The things that we believe aren't necessarily true. And so how do we come to truth? And you brought up this idea of how do we understand truth or how do we move through the world um, by navigating with our hearts. Mm -hmm. And we have a, a major issue, particularly um, uh, here in the U.S., with a lot of like yoga practitioners and um, crunchy granola moms and they're like sweet and nice and they're homeschooling and they've got all kinds of good things. Um, that they believe about themselves and the world and they want to do good things in the world. And they have fallen hook, line and sinker for all of these conspiracy theories um, because they are not um, also exercising good discernment. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the head and the heart. Mm -hmm. yeah, are, would, would you, uh, in that direction, does it feel like they may be the heart or just less with the head because the two may not be equivalent, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So there's, I think we need to bring in another part of this, which is uh, ego. And there's, you know, there has to be an approach to 
understanding the world that comes from humility in order to really get an understanding of the world is my experience. And when we come in with this ego, then we already have made judgments. We've already have these ideas of how things are supposed to be because that's what the ego does. The ego says, this is good, this is right, that's wrong, that's bad. And, um, and so there's a lot of uh, confirmation bias. There's a lot of um, here is information which is telling me something that I have intuitively and, um, and from the information that I have seen around me understand to be true. And this is now like helping me put the pieces together. So, so there's this feeling that comes in that's like, I've discovered something. I understand how deep the rabbit hole goes. I, I you know, this is, um, this is like, I have done something which is an elevation of ego. And the conspiracies that are out there right now are pretty much they're confirming what we know at a deep level, which is um, they, in quotes, have been lying to us. And, um, and we have a society, we have a ca capitalistic society, which is based on the idea that it's perfectly okay for one person to have more than another. And it's perfectly okay for uh, that one person if they have the ability to, um, to take from someone else in an unfair exchange, which is also called a good deal, that they can, um, that that's all right, that that's good, actually, um, that that person must be smarter, more capable, more, um, more, uh, more deserving. The and unending profit. So model. when, yeah, yeah. And so when people are encountering these conspiracy theories that are saying like, yes, they've been lying to you. Well, we all know that corporations, government and media have been lying to us all along. And so we have this sense of, yes, we're not in our um, long ago egalitarian hunter-gatherer community in which everyone is supporting each other and everybody knows everybody's story. There's no lies. And uh, so we know that fundamentally things are really, really wrong. We can sense that because for 99.999% of the time that we've been on two legs, we lived in that hunter-gatherer egalitarian community style. And so now everything kind of feels wrong. We know something's wrong. We know they, in quotes, are lying to us. And then the conspiracy theories just sort of, you know, link things together um, and it, it, validate something that we have been feeling even though the conspiracy theories are just total bullshit yeah you know but with um, ego one of the things that's like the so much of instinct is the feeling of being able to point and say you're wrong that there's nothing better to like strengthen the ego e even i think a bit more so than having other people agree with you to say you're right i think that that whole feeling of like you're wrong or in the same token the world has wronged me it's like that that feeling of something is wrong um, is, is so strong and attractive. And I have a, a philosophical problem with the profit model and, you know, like 
too bad for me because that's the world we live in. And I just don't see it as being sustainable. Um, it, it doesn't make sense to me, but maybe I'm just not smart enough to understand it. But it seems that that feeling that something is wrong uh, is, is pervasive since we're born into this kind of culture where, as you said, like profit is made by a, a good deal, which is an unfair deal, a, a, a not honest, transparent deal. And then when we have that feeling we want more than anything to make sense of the world. This is our, our, the function of our brain. And so we draw these different points of information, whether it's good information or bad information, and it becomes, Duncan Trussell said he liked conspiracy theories because they're like the myths of our time. It's the story that people put together when they have incomplete information. And he, he finds that very interesting. And that seems to be, you know, so such a compelling attraction for a group of people to go to, to, to point out to most of the rest of the world, especially those that have the talking head, you know, uh, soapbox on TV or media or politicians or corporations and say, you're wrong, you're lying to us. We know better. We know something else. And, you know, you have enough people shaking their heads, agreeing with you. It, it becomes where we're at right now, which is pretty insane. Yeah, yeah. I hadn't heard it quite that way before, but um, but yeah, I, I agree that if we are outside of conspiracy theories, if you're wanting to um, have a breakthrough about a particular thing, you know, Einstein said that he didn't think that he was smarter than anybody else. He just stayed with the problem longer. And um, when you hold when you cultivate the ability to hold cognitive dissonance. So there's something that isn't right and you hold onto that, eventually that can come into clearer focus. Mm -hmm. And these conspiracy theories, one of the foundational means by which they are propagating is through questions. And so there's a lot of questions that are being asked, you know, the QAnon, they don't really you know, they come out with some answers, but mostly they're coming out with questions and look for this and notice that. And, um, and it creates this cognitive dissonance that is looking for, because of the way we are designed as, uh, as hairless monkeys, is looking for resolution. And so as soon as you find that resolution, Oh, the body relaxes and we feel really good and we're ready to move on. And we know now how to navigate through the world better. We've, we have a new truth that we hold on to. It's been fascinating for me to have conversations with these, people's, these people on Facebook because they all sound like they're in a cult because they are. And they parrot back information but are unable to have rational discussion. And they're well-intended. mostly they just, you know, yeah, yeah. So the best many of intention. them are, but yeah. then they, <laughs> so many of them are. I mean, there's two different factions. There are the ones that have been looking for justification for their racism and, and judgment and, and hatred all yeah, along. Yeah. And uh, they're super happy about it. And then there's the, you know, the crunchy granola mom crowd that, um, and festival goers and, you know, folks who are in airy fairies, you know, I don't mean yeah. these, these labels to be derogatory because a lot of these people are really good friends of mine too. Um, but they are people who love to navigate through the world with their hearts and yeah, yeah. they don't necessarily apply a lot of rigorous, um, intellectual, 
fact finding and and that's an issue you know that's a that is that's ego as far as i'm concerned that's approaching this with a i'm just going to trust my heart because my heart won't lie to me and um and i'm so special no you've got a you've got a brain for a reason and you have a heart for a reason and you have an ego for a reason so please use them appropriately you know it's not difficult but it does take time and energy to sort through um, the information that is available, this trash barge of information on the internet, and find out where um, where are your sources. You know what's the what's the bias of the um, the the page or the newspaper or news outlet that you're getting your information from. Yeah. This person that is listed as a doctor, are they a doctor? Are they a doctor in the field that they're speaking about? Um, you know, it's, are it, they it's, gaining by the information that they're selling? Would they have a bias and a um, yeah, to, yeah. To say something? Yeah. And that I've, really brings us to the foundational. That's this is the foundational question that I that I'm holding uh, with my own uh, cognitive bias for our times is how do we trust each other? Because as artificial intelligence gets better and better and better at being able to uh, present anyone doing and saying anything, yeah. what we see and what we hear are no longer things that we can uh, take as being truthful. Yeah. And so how do we trust each other? Because we absolutely have to be able to trust each other if humanity is going to be able to make it. And, and you haven't, you're holding that cognitive dissonance because you have not arrived at a, at an answer. No, I got nothing. Um. <laughs> I mean, there are people, so the thing about with the heart, um, uh, a native American teacher, Blackfeet, uh, he had, well, I was talking to him one time about the, the four directions wheel and the different colors of the different people, uh, white, black, yellow, red. And that uh, each has like a strength in a certain area. And part of the discussion was that uh, the red people, uh, the Native Americans, uh, for example, uh, may have a strength with their heart and the white people, they may have strength with their heads and that we all need to learn from each other. It's not, it's not enough to just go with just one of those things that we need to have this sort of imbalance. Yeah. So yeah, I, yeah. Me, so that, there's a, there's you know, a gut check that the, happens through the heart that I that I don't use mm. enough. I'm very very headstrong, like, and I think Chris, I think you are too. I would guess because you're very intellectual, ability <laughs> right now to sort of break this apart um, into the the components that need attention is a very cerebral sort of intellectual exercise. Uh, but I don't know how how strong your heart is too. But for me, it's like. I've worked on it before. I've forgotten about it. Now I want to work on it again and, uh, and include it, not have it eclipse the mental faculty, but include it more often. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think from a technological standpoint, uh, one of the pieces is open source everything. 
so that everything is uh, available, is uh, accessible and, and transparent. And then, um, you know, in terms, of, in terms of navigating with the heart, um, when, when I first heard uh, Trump speak, within the first few seconds, um, I very clearly had the sense of, wow, I'm listening to a used car salesman. Oh, you know, I'm listening spot to a on, man. Artist. Yeah, spot on. Same here. And this guy is, this guy is, he is out for himself. I cannot trust this person. This is a slimy individual. And it was, it's, it's been stunning to me to see how many people did not have that kind of response. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure if that comes from those individuals and their, um, their lack of transparent honesty within themselves, that somehow there's a resonance there that feels familiar or acceptable. Um, but I don't know how you really make that acceptable. And I do believe that anybody who practices meditation and really gets um, can let go of all of their biases and seek that still pool. If they sit with anything that is a conspiracy theory or a Trump speech or whatever, that they will be able to come to a feeling which says, this is perfectly in alignment. This is completely out of alignment, or this is like somewhere within that realm. Like you can feel right. that mm, something's not right here. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that's, you know, that's a practice on a personal level that I believe everyone needs to be doing in order to navigate the world this way. Um, and it's also really good, like to, uh, to then seek more information for further validation. Um, you know, when I used to do, um, when I used to climb trees with a chainsaw on the west coast of British Columbia, Right at the top there, you know, I would sometimes be topping these uh, huge Douglas fir trees and I might have 80 feet of tree above me where I was topping it. So I've got a huge tree that's still above me that as it starts falling, branches can fall out. Um, I have two friends uh, who are in this work with me that have brain damage from branches uh, shaking out and hitting them. And... Um, you know, the tree can split, it can twist, and I've got nowhere to run. And so everything has to be just right. And what I would do if there was a, if there was the sense that there, that this was tricky or that something might be up, I would shut off the saw and I would go into that still pool within myself. And then I would feel into the environment and into the near future. And if there was something that, that um, something that I felt as a physiological response to that question that told me, yes, there is something there, you better look for it, then I would start looking, you know, and sometimes I would have to climb up further and I would have to cut out a branch or two or something. Um, but, you know, that way of navigating saved my life, probably. Um, you know, I was, um, I stayed safe in this, in this field that was at the time, the most dangerous job in the world. And it was, you know, it was partly by going into that still pool and, and um, 
and having the openness to those questions. Yeah. And I think that that using that kind of tool, that kind of resonance or, or mm, clarifying with your stillness is going to be one of the things that is going to help us navigate a future where the information may not be always reliable, though it can appear enticing and convincing. And you said in the beginning too, like yeah, how yeah. our ego plays a role and like, you know, how we may, like you had this longstanding belief because it's what you'd heard for so long about the lunar calendar and it, how it lines up with uh, women's cycles and how there's, you know, there it's a 28 day stretch and, and you had like accepted it and, and saw it as the ground until you found differently. And when that happened there, there's a, some level of uncomfortable or uncertain shift in sort of the way the world is like where the edges of the circle are, where the center is shifted to. Um, I think of like songs that I grew up with singing the wrong lyrics to and how like one day I find the real lyrics and it's just an epiphany as a simple example, but, <laughs> you know, but, but it, it, yeah, it yeah. changes everything. And it's, it is difficult to, allow ourselves to do that. And, and one more on the, with the, the well-intended people or type, these individuals are, have a, a willingness to stretch what they accept, you know, uh, which may be in defiance of popular, you know, I don't believe in spirits or astrology or whatever it happens to be. And so that's a positive thing to have that willingness to allow for some sort of unusual information, but it can also uh, leave you open for taking in invalid information willingly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and I even um, kind of along the same lines of the conspiracy theories, where the way in which uh, these conspiracies are, are promoted and sort of facilitated because, you know, it's, it is a psyops that is very well-funded and very professionally run that then has a huge population, a huge crowd that, um, uh, that, that keeps it moving and keeps doing all of the, all of the, uh, the big legwork of bringing in all of the pieces and seeing, see, look at this. Now it even makes more sense. Here's the evidence. You know, it's the sort of the, the definition of bad science is making up your mind and then looking for the evidence to support it. Yeah. And in the case of, you know, a 28 day uh, lunar cycle, I, I did the math 13 times 28. And um, and it's like it's 364. I'm like, oh, this is the perfect calendar. This totally works. Fucking romance. You know, like this. It's um, it gave me information to support my uh, pre-existing bias against um, the Romans and their persecution of pagans and, you know, indigenous cultures. And, uh, you know, despite all of the good things that we got from Romans, there were a whole bunch of really, really, really bad things that came out of um, the Roman time. And, um, and it turns out, you know, the whole thing was wrong. It was just completely wrong. Um, but I was ready to pat my ego and say, wow, look at this thing that I just discovered doing some simple math that uh, even proves my point even more. Right. But it's totally wrong. Right. What have the Romans ever done for us? 
(laughs) (laughs) Right, right. Yeah. Um, And yeah, and I think this is uh, where we also come to the complexity of the world and how it is impossible for one person to be able to understand what's going on in the world. Um, And so we have ever since we, um, you know, particularly ever since writing, which is kind of what came out of tracking, you know, seeing these marks on the ground that tell a story, and then we're putting marks onto clay or paper that tell a story. We have been adding, we've been accumulating um, information one on top of another. And that's why it's so important for history to be accurate rather than the ruling class, the ones who won, um, writing the histories. And so that's why it's important to rewrite histories. And having access to all of the information instead of controlling, you know, which people get which parts of this incomplete information. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so it brings us back to this foundational piece of we have to trust each other because if you give me information and it's wrong, and then I build upon that information, then we're not getting anywhere that's really supporting us uh, individually or collectively. We need to have the, we need to have that honesty. Um, and this, you know, this is where here's my wacky, long-haired idea that um, artificial intelligence could actually save us if we are committed to pushing forwards with technological advancements as fast as we can stumble, which is the way that things are going right now. Because AI has the ability to sort through this information and fact check it and get the most accurate information that is available and continuously be updating that to be the most accurate. But again, everything has to be, Everything has to be facilitated with a commitment to honesty and transparency. Yes. And, and we should always leave room for an incomplete answer or an uncertainty or a misinterpretation. I've, I've watched some pretty fascinating and a bit frightening TED Talks on uh, artificial intelligence once it reaches a, a certain threshold. And there's this race to, to reach this because once artificial intelligence is able to itself um, develop, uh, then whoever gets there first will always be ahead of anyone else. And in terms of problem solving, when you take out like morality from the equation, uh, the example was given, you know, you give the AI, you say, hey, we need a a cure for brain cancer. And AI then gives brain cancer to everybody in the world and then applies, you know, 10,000 different remedies and determines which one is effective you know, as like a very pragmatic <laughs> right, mathematical, yes. right? Yeah. So yeah. Um, but, but in any case, indeed, uh, hopefully that is a, a tool that can help us suss out in a major, very clear, fast scale, what has facts that line up behind, you know, this piece of information and which of it is uh, bullshit or malarkey. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, as much as I've studied all of this, the the needle that needs to be threaded by humanity is so incredibly narrow for us to be able to make it through. Um, I'm extremely doubtful. I, I don't think humanity is actually. What's that? To survive ourselves. 
What'd you say? Um, to survive in the way that brings us to a beautiful future that works for everyone. Mm-hmm. You know, we have, we have the opportunity. So, uh, you know, I look at it like, um, when we are considering the primordial ooze and the way in which evolution has uh, moved life forwards, starting with single cellular organisms and then coming together into multicellular organisms. And when we look at the human body right now, like to say that I am an I is ludicrous. Uh, I'm not. I, I am a community. That's yeah. the only logical scientific way to understand my body, you know, of 40 trillion cells, give or take. And half of them are not containing my DNA. Um, and, uh, and I've got all of these different specialized cells that are working in little co-ops, little factories, um, little communities within the larger community. And, um, and so I'm already this very complex community. The next step of human evolution, if we choose to take it, has to be, in, in my opinion, the superhuman community. So the community in which every individual and every person um, is like a cell of a larger super organism of humanity. And, uh, you know, and just in the same way that um, each cell within our body has to be in it for the whole because they understand that when they're supporting the whole organism then then the body lives and the individual cell survives you know forever however long it happens to live seven days for a skin cell or something i don't know um and and that you know we can think of each human in that way too so this is the quantum leap to an outer ring of uh what it is to be human Otherwise, I just don't see how we can make it um, if people don't have this investment in themselves as an individual operating as a part of a whole. And yeah. the, the fascinating thing is that's kind of the way that we used to think about it. You know, for virtually the entire time we've been on two legs, we lived egalitarian in the way that. Um, many indigenous languages, you don't even have the ability to say I or me or mine. You know, you speak of yourself as a member of this community and to think of oneself as outside of that, as separate from that, as autonomous from that is inconceivable. What is that? That's not even a real life. You're not even a real human if you're separate from your community. But how do you do that with 8 billion people? Have you heard of Ken um, Wilber? You know, and, and now we've... Yeah, yeah. I, I like his model I of I transcend. from him in a long time. We've got a bit of a delay, which uh, may sound like we're interrupting each other, but we're not, and it'll be funny to listen to for whoever's listening to this episode. <laughs> but um, <laughs> uh, he, I like what he, he talks about in terms of evolution uh, personally and, and as a society, um, that there's a model of transcend and include. So, uh, you know, from the egalitarian societies of yesteryear uh, to today's rugged individualist 
um, where we have a, an us and a them and, and more of a struggle to transforming that, not, not regressing, um, but to, to just transcend where we are and include our, all of our past so that we recognize, ah, I, we will all do better if we stop fighting each other and recognize that we are all a part of something which is a whole and, and work together as a humanity. The Dalai Lama, current guy, I uh, saw him in Madison years ago. Actually, I got to, I almost met him. We, we happened to sneak into the, the Capitol. They were doing construction. We didn't realize that we came in some door and we were behind like the big beefy security guys that were keeping at bay a whole bunch of school kids and stuff. And the Dalai Lama and his entourage walk by and we start falling up the stairs and um, get as far as like the chambers where he was going to be presenting and, and got roughly blocked out of there. And I really wanted to meet him and uh, and I wasn't able to. But then as he left, I, I was like following him down and he's driving away in a car and I'm like waving and the window of the car he's in goes down and he leans out and waves and smiles like a wild man at me. It was like it was such a lovely, like childlike uh, enthusiasm. Anyways, one of the <laughs> things he said that day was people, humanity can seem like such a destructive force on this planet that, you know, you look at the, the things we've done and, and this is maybe around the time that that movie and Inconvenient Truth had come out and there were sort of graphics that were being shown, infographics to see the sort of exponential rise of resource consumption and human population and, you know, sort of pointing to our, our inability to sustain this if we continue down this course uh, in any meaningful, prosperous way. And so he was kind of talking within that vibe and he said, humanity as a species seems to be so destructive and people may question, aren't we just like a cancer on the earth? Isn't it better if we just go? And he says, you can acknowledge that this is seems to be the case oftentimes, but it is, he believes it's very much worth it, you know, that we all stay here and continue to work hard because we have the ability to be kind. We, unlike any other animal we have, this is what he was saying, we have the ability to choose kindness. That's a choice that we have. And if, if we all did that, we would realize a very wonderful world. Yeah, 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 definitely true. And we're at this really fascinating crossroads that has, um, has come about because of technology. Um, we're at a unique point in the history of humanity right now. And what I'm, what I'm looking at is um, exponential growth and how before this time, like at any other time in, in history, if you, you know, if you, if you, uh, somebody's got a pie and you take away a piece of the pie, um, pretty much the pie now has one less piece. You know, if you're growing crops out in a field and you split up that field in two and, and you uh, decide that you're going to uh, leave one end fallow and only grow on the other half, you only get half. You know, it's like very simple linear mathematics. But the way in which um, computing, any, everything that's related to computing um, is is and has been progressing has been exponential. So the, um, the speed of processing, the cost of, of making it, the size of it, all of these things have been shifting at an exponential rate since, uh, I don't know, like the 1950s, something like that. 
and um, and it continues. Um, it's called Moore's law. And when we look at exponential growth, it's just something that isn't. It's not natural. Exponential growth is not something that we tend to see in nature, because even those things that do have the potential to grow exponentially, there's always these mitigating factors of, you know, disease and starvation and whatever that comes in, predation that um, that that brings it back to more of a linear level, because nature is foundationally stable. You know, that's sort of the operating system is always to bring things back to stability. Um, the, the classic example is, you know, the creation of the, uh, the chess game and how that was presented to a Persian king. And uh, he liked it so much. He's like, dude, this is awesome. What can I give you as a way of saying thank you for this? And the person who brought the game said, oh, you know, just give me one grain of rice or wheat um, for the first square and two for the next and four for the third square and eight for that, the next one and 16 and so on until you get to the end. And there's 64 squares, which sounds like not that much. Um, and so, you know, the king said, sure, just give this man what he wants. And he figures, you know, it'll be a couple of bags of rice. Awesome. Good trade. But it's not. By the time you get to the 64th square, exponential growth, if they were grains of rice and you laid them end to end, it would reach from the earth to the nearest star, Proxima Centauri, and back. It's unimaginable. It's beyond what our logical thinking minds can easily understand because there's nothing in nature to model that. So it becomes this crazy thought experiment. But the reality is that this is how technologically technology has been advancing. Mm -hmm. And so what that means is um, if, if you have a pie and you take a slice of, uh, out of that pie, well, during the time that it took for you to cut that slice and move it out and consume it, we've just baked uh, 20 more pies. You know, the, the rate of growth and understanding of how the world works, it's all moving and developing so quickly right now that um, the most intelligent, logical, um, accurate way for humanity to up-level, you know, even the very rich people for them to up-level their lives and to have a beautiful future that works for everyone is through cooperation um, so that we can harness this potential and use it for good. Um, there's, there's just, there's so much incredible possibility that exists in this outer ring, this, this quantum level of growth for humanity. And at the same time, it's absolutely terrifying because the people who are currently in charge are all fuckers. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of fuckery out there for sure. Uh, you know, it just takes yeah. someone to, to recognize through whatever personal experience, direct experience now I'm talking, it's not, it's going to be more than a philosophy, reading a book or, or a spiritual idea that's, you know, given to you through whatever religion you may uh, follow, but, you know, a, a real direct experience that, that opens your maybe heart here, I'm not sure, but opens your recognition that 
the other and you are the same that that and it is it is in helping the other you are helping all it's like that that spirit of of helping not at the not to the cost of yourself you have to be well enough to to be you know in good spirits and and able to to help and you should then also be receiving help but it's some it's like a that seems to be like a quantum leap of identification to to see that and it takes some real willingness to to be open to the experience if and when you you happen to have it what 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 drove you to that yeah, realization is- chris Oh, I don't know. I have all kinds of crazy thoughts. Uh, <laughs> you know, I'm I'm in such a narrow field of study because the things that I'm so passionate about are Stone Age skills and Stone Age life ways, natural principles, and um, which is understood through careful observation of nature and future technology and human dynamics. And so you put all of those things together and there's really big questions, you know, and when we look at like what you were just saying there, this, this altruism, this, um, this understanding of if I am helping this person up who is, um, you know, has, has less material wealth than me, who has less knowledge, who has less of whatever, if I'm supporting that person and helping them to um, elevate themselves in their way of being in the world, that that also benefits me because there is no separation. Um, in truth, there's, there's no separation. That's an old concept. Mm-hmm. You know, that's an ancient concept. When we look at, again, so many of these indigenous languages, many of them don't have a word for stranger. You know, there's no comprehension that somebody who is on two legs is an enemy, is somebody that is anyone other than a friend. Um, you know, in the in the Mayan language, in uh, hopefully I pronounced that right, uh, means I am another you. Yeah. And um, and so when we you know, when we take that ancient way of being in the world and then we apply that today, that's why I'm saying it's a quantum leap. It's we have come full circle. When we really get that realization again, when we really come back to egalitarianism, to no strangers, to this, um, I am a part of this community and we are inseparable that I am we, then it's a circle. And yet we're not where we were when we were chipping rocks. Right. You know, right. we're, we're in the next ring out a quantum leap. It's within reach. Um, I, I'm studying yeah. uh, dog cognition and, and uh, behavior through like a audited course through Duke university, which is really cool. There's so many, you know, with the information technology we have today, you can like watch Stanford lectures and, and Harvard and Yale. And uh, anyways, um, I'm taking this course for free but through Duke, Duke university. Is, Duke is an excellent dog's name. I know it's a friend of mine's dog's name too. So I'm, <laughs> I'm just so proud of him. Like he's such an accomplished dog. Um, they're talking about uh, the, you know, the actual change in the gene, uh, the, oh, now I, now my vocabulary is slipping, the near frequency, I think it's called or something. But anyways, it's, it's genetic um, mutation and change over time. Uh, and in terms of domestic 
classification of dogs, um, they have, you know, we've got a pretty good understanding now, especially when we've had opportunities to look at the domestication of wild foxes in a, in a closer history of 50 years is in Siberia with like um, a, a group of controlled foxes, wild and domesticated. And, and then they've compared them to chimps and bonobos. And one of the, the very interesting things through domestication, one of the side effects is sort of a socialization. Like if the more social you are and the more you are willing to regard in a positive way, um, the people in your community and your pack, or even, you know, the, the other uh, non members of the same species as you, the more successful you are. And when they're looking at bonobos who are like super cool, you know, they don't, they resolve conflict through sex, right? As the classic example for the bonobos. When they had a controlled experiment where they had a, uh, a bonobo in a cage and then they had a bonobo that was a friend of this bonobos in the next cage. And then they had a bonobo that was a total stranger to this bonobo in the cage in another cage. They gave this uh, first bonobo extra food. And what bonobo did was the, the experiment was, is he going to give it to the bonobo he knows, his friend, or is he going to give it to a stranger? And uh, they would always give it to a stranger. And it was that kind of level of uh, social wow. to, huh. to include and expand the tribe, expand the group. And uh, yeah, that was really cool. So I think it's, I hope it's still possible within our reach. But like you said, it's kind of threading the needle for us to, to be able to make it. But I'm rooting for that side. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, however we look at it, it is the most fascinating time to be alive in the history of humanity. So, you know, good job manifesting at this time. Yeah. Here's a really easy transition. Did you see any bonobos on your wandering? Any Montana mountain bonobos? Oh. <laughs> <Nice laughs> <to you. laughs> uh, I mean, there was, there was, there was some wacky stuff going on. We didn't see any bonobos, but, um, yeah. Wow. Uh, so we, <laughs> it was a bit of that. <laughs> yeah. We decided that we were going to go on this, uh, this trip, um, in the moonlight. So we originally, we had chosen that we were going to leave on the full moon and, uh, and Tom, who's, uh, you know, the, the, who runs the school, he, he was in charge of this walk and, um, and he, uh, hurt his knee. And so we delayed it just a little bit. And by delaying it, we had a snowstorm that was coming in and, you know, decided, um, I guess this is, you know, going by feel rather than, um, looking at all of the data points decided, yeah, let's just go ahead and do it anyway. It feels good. So we left in the evening at, I don't know, seven o'clock, something like that. Um, and there's no snow yet, but the snow is coming and everything is, uh, is clouded over. You can't really see the full moon, but there's enough that's filtering through to be able to, to see well enough in the snow. Mm -hmm. um, and then we haven't gone that far, though, before the big flakes start coming down. And so now we're, we're navigating this journey, which, um, you know, Tom was figuring we leave at seven, we should be able to make it to this uh, shelter that we have that's um, down on the, the Jefferson River, we should be able to make it there by around midnight. And 
now the snow starts really coming down and I'm looking out at the landscape and I can see maybe, oh, maybe, um, you know, 50 to 50 to 100 yards in front of me. And all I can see is just a gently rolling landscape. And that's all I've got. There's no, you can't even see the glow of the moon through the cloud cover. There's just, everything is sort of like a, a fuzzy grayish white and there's the, the role of the landscape and that's it. And at one point I said to Tom, I'm like, wow, you must have like a really good intuitive sense of navigation because I couldn't do this. You know, I, I would, um, I had the opportunity at one point to uh, study uh, Arctic deer falcons uh, in Greenland. And uh, this friend of mine who had been working up there, he said, yeah, you know, when you're in Greenland, you're like, if you pull out a compass, the compass just spins. It's like, dude, you're here. Uh, you're that far north. And, um, and this was before GPS and everything. And, uh, and I said, well, how do, you, how do you navigate? How do you get around there? He said, well, you take a Greenlander with you because they know how to get around. They have this intuitive sense, which is, you know, the same with sled dogs and horses. If you're in a blizzard and a whiteout, you just let them take you where they want to go and you'll get there. But if you try and figure it out and you're not a natural human who has grown up in that kind of reality where you have this sense called dead reckoning, where you can just turn and point and, uh, and know that that's the direction back to, to camp or wherever, mm -hmm. um, you get completely lost. And, and, uh, and Tom said to me, no, actually, I have a terrible sense of direction. And yeah. so we, we, uh, <laughs> we pulled out we pulled out uh, the, the couple of phones that we had and pulled up Google Maps out there in this blizzard in Montana. And, um, and we were, yeah, we were not where we were supposed to be. And so we looked at the, looked at the uh, Google Maps and started walking again. And, um, and then, you know, checked again a while later and we're still not where we're supposed to be and we're not where we thought we were walking to from the last point either. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So we did a tremendous amount of wandering around and, um, and at one point, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just I'm behind a little ways and I'm watching and I'm watching Tom and I can see him walking in a big arc to the left, which I think is probably because his, his knee was hurting him. Um, you know, humans naturally walk in a circle anyway, uh, of, you know, two to three miles in, in circumference. And I think that's a natural um, ability that we have to, to keep children in particular from getting too lost. You know, we always kind of circle back to where we began, which is the same with um, most mammals. But um, yeah, there was Tom. He was definitely walking in a circle. <laughs> and, uh, and then, you know, finally we got into... Um, where the topography was leading us more directly um, downhill into um, into the river valley, and we were able to navigate our way there. Um, but partly because I think that initially the the um, what had been figured out, and I I just you know I just felt like oh, Tom's running this show. I'm just gonna you know come along. It'll be it'll be great, and. Um, and I kind of wished 
that I had gone over a map with him beforehand because um, it was a really long, long ways. There was no way that even if we had walked straight and direct that we would have been there by midnight. Um, by the time we did actually get there, we had been walking for with a couple of really big, um, well, with one really big rest where we stopped and ate some food and, and warmed up and, and then moved on. But um, we didn't actually reach our camp until around 9 a.m. the next morning. So we had been hiking out there for like 14 hours and mm. we probably covered like 20 miles in the snow, slippery hillsides and, you know, through the brush and snow falling down on us. We're all just soaking wet. And, mm -hmm. um, and so we, we got into this, uh, rock shelter that, um, that's down along the river there and went to sleep and did not wake up until, uh, I got up at like two o'clock in the afternoon. Mm. Um, and, then, uh, you know, like I'm working on a few things around camp and, um, and one of the students slid down, um, in her sleeping bag and, um, ended up rolling her sleeping bag into the fire, her sleeping bag caught on fire. I always thought, you know, modern sleeping bags would be more fire resistant. Than yeah, I thought so too. Actually was. No, it was crazy. It was like instantly there was um, there were two foot flames coming up from her from the base of her. Had bag. she been farting and, in her sleeping bag? <laughs> well, I don't know. I don't, I'm not sure. Just I, a theory. Uh, yeah. All right. Yeah, it's a good theory. Uh, it was a down bag. And I think, you know, once the feathers kind of, you know, got in with it. But um, as huh. fast wow. as it was going up. Um, the only thing that, um, that, that really made sense that was right there available for me to put things out was my hands. And, mm -hmm. um, and I, like, I knew even in that instant what I was doing and, um, and moving very quickly, I was able to pat out the, the fire, which, would have been perfectly fine. I wouldn't have gotten any burns even uh, if it hadn't been for that, that like plasticky yeah, kind of nylon melted on your skin. Yeah. 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 So that um, sticking onto my skin gave me uh, a, a few burns here and there, but you know, nothing, nothing serious. And anyway, I got her put out. Um, and, um, and that was like one big thing that happened, you know, uh, uh, this person lighting on fire, mm. um, which, uh, you know, she called from her sleeping bag in a sleepy voice. Was I just on fire? <laughs> I was no, like, yeah, really? You were just oh, on fire, uh, <laughs> but I put you out. It's all right. And so then I, I dragged her further away from the fire and she kept on sleeping. Um, but, uh, you know, that was one thing. And, uh, and there was, there were a couple of items that, um, I don't know, she had a shirt or something that once we had arrived, um, and we were just completely exhausted and got a fire going. And so some things were put off of branches and along this rock wall that, um, where the items were set up to dry. What's the temperature um, like? Uh, not, 
not too bad. I think it got down into maybe it got down to like 20 degrees okay. um, that night. So, you know, not extremely cold, mm-hmm. um, but because everything was wet, it was definitely really important to dry everything out. And um, yeah, maybe it was a shirt of hers that um, being too close to the fire was completely ruined. I think there was a little damage on um, a pair of pants, you know, here and there some damage. Mm-hmm. That was one thing that really struck me. And, um, and while we were hiking down, you know, through this like crazy 14 hour um, hike in the snow in the, in the middle of the night, lost uh, through part of it, there was um, another individual who just the exhaustion um, overwhelmed him. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a panic that came up also. And the combination of those things, um, you know, he really, you know, he had his, like, I, I'm, I'm having a hard time moving, like my, my legs don't want to work. I'm so exhausted. I need to get out of here. I need to like have somebody come and pick me up. And, um, and I've, I've been in, I've been in conditions where I've been completely, completely exhausted. Mm -hmm. And I know what the predictable response to that. I haven't been in that space with panic as well. But when you add that in, then one of the predictable things is that you lose things, you know, and people have, who have um, been in those kinds of situations lost in the woods, um, they will put down their rifle and walk away from it, their backpack, their coat, their shoes, their gloves, their hat, their, you know, everything. And then um, when I've had that, um, that depth of exhaustion for me and I've lost things, the fascinating thing for me is when I sort through my mind and I very calmly and consciously go back through and, and I'm searching for where did I put this item down? I can't find it. Like there's no record. Like it's, it's just this blank. Mm -hmm. Um, I have no idea. I cannot backtrack to get to that mentally. And, uh, and so I was watching this individual do that. I was watching them, you know, um, set their glasses down um, and not know where they were um, and, you know, various other items. And, um, and then they were able to contact um, somebody who was back at camp who they were very close to and was a source of, of emotional support for them. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were, you know, talking on and off with this person and kind of like holding on to their phone. And as they're walking, I, I, I noticed this and I'm like, that's a bad call. Um, here's a person who's so exhausted. They're not tracking what they're doing with the, uh, the items that they have. This is, you know, this is an opportunity for that item to get lost. And that's what happened. Um, they ended up losing their phone. And um, we Damn. backtracked and we never did find it in the snow. Mm-hmm. And I, I've been sitting with, since that trip, I've been sitting with the question of how much should I be stepping in and controlling the situation or, or making strong suggestions of how to do things and how much is it better for me to just let things play out 
and for them to learn by experience. You know, for myself, like I've had a bunch of different things um, since I was a tiny child. I've been camping and, and uh, around fires and I've burned a bunch of different things, you know, over the last 52 years. Mm-hmm. And I've learned gradually so that even when we when we got to our shelter and everyone, myself included, was absolutely completely exhausted, none of my stuff got damaged. None of my stuff got lost. You know, I, I had trained myself and understood deeply enough that um, I kept track of my things and uh, dry them out slowly. So, and I'm also the kind of person who th- for most of my life did not learn well from people giving me advice. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I refused gurus. I refused um, a lot of instruction and just kind of needed to learn by experience. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts about this or, or what you're I totally this, do, but, man, because um, this, this is, is something I'm wondering about. This is chiming in on uh, the training I used to give um, as as part of my previous job in health and safety, one of the, we would be often out in the field, uh, which just means out of the office in some environment, taking samples of groundwater and or soil. And uh, depending on the activity, it can take a long time. We could be doing it in various weather conditions. Uh, For example, in the Gulf of Mexico, it was extreme heat when we were working on the the BPMC 252 um, uh, DP water horizon, I think it was called, um, cleanup. And then up here in the Nordics in, in, you know, freezing weather or, or like freezing rain. Um, one of the things that we talk about in terms of, uh, doing that work is fatigue and to know the, the symptoms of fatigue and to be able to recognize it in ourselves if, and when we can, but that point it's usually too late so something that's very important is to be working if you're in those conditions that are difficult with someone else if possible and if that is possible then one of your jobs is to keep an eye on the other for those symptoms of fatigue because one of the first symptoms of fatigue is uh to it's like when you're drunk um, you, you start to make bad decisions. You start to have a distortion of, of reality and including like, you know, oh, I'm not drunk. I can drive, you know, like you have this inability to recognize that the condition you're in is not optimal for the activity that you're doing. And so we definitely, as part of that training, um, you know, build in this, uh, awareness for one another to say, Hey, you know, how are you feeling? How are you doing? You need to take a break. You need some water. Should we call it, you know, should we stop right now? Or should we change what we're doing? Um, so that we don't have an incident where we've got uh, damaged, uh, equipment or lost equipment, um, or an injury, uh, or something like that. And there's a cognitive bias. There's a whole bunch of them. One of them is plan commitment where, you know, you, you have some idea of something that you want to do and you're going to stick to it. Now, in the case of survival, you know, there are certain things that you, you must prioritize to get done. Um, but in the case of field work, you know, it may be that we were supposed to do X number of samples, 20 samples, uh, but because of the conditions and the fatigue and exhaustion and, you know, what needs to be done still, we're going to say 15 is what we'll do and we'll have to do some more tomorrow. 
Um, so it's that recognition of, of fatigue as being a very important element of um, how it affects our judgment and, and the role of each other keeping an eye on one another and, and giving that reminder. So I think now you've got a solid example. Those are the most meaningful ones too, not just, you know, thou shalt do this, but hey, you know, remember when Alvin lost his, you know, phone or, or, or put his boots for winter camping. If you, you know, maybe you sleep in your boots or you put them in your sleeping bag, but if you don't, you get up in the morning and they're like solid chunks of ice <laughs> that you can't fit your foot into, you know? Right. Um, so right. you have yeah. those personal stories that you can, that, that are more sticky and, and they're more relatable. And I think, I think there is an opportunity to, you know, underscore what you just went through as a lesson for everyone. Cause fatigue, man, you know, is, is a big one when you're in survival mode. And you got the adrenaline up and everything, and you know you can get exhausted and make some mistakes. Yeah, yeah. There's, I, it's a combination of the fatigue, as well as just good bushcraft woodsman strategies. Yeah. Um, and there were some things that, um, so because of my experience, I understand better about how to set things up around a fire to dry things safely. Mm -hmm. And they didn't have that depth of understanding compounded by, um, by fatigue. And so, you know, it's, it's just something I'm sitting with, you know, how much, because if I, if I look at everything that I'm doing here, you know, everything that I'm teaching, um, just this last week, we've been doing uh, stone tool manufacture. We've been flint napping. We've been doing pottery. Um, next, we're doing tule uh, basketry. So using rushes for making baskets. And then we'll be moving on to willow basketry. Um, but all of these different things, there's, there is the best, most effective strategy. And if I am adamant about me showing everybody only the best, most effective way, then they miss something in the whole picture. Mm -hmm. um, so for instance, with fire making, if I make sure that everybody has the best materials and they're using just the perfect strategy and everything's really dialed in, then typically a, a beginner, somebody who's never picked up two sticks before, um, within a four hour class, they're able to start a fire with bow drill and or hand drill. And those same people, if I take them out into the woods in a real situation, especially if it's just been raining and I say, okay, now make a fire, they won't be able to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, we learn so much by making mistakes, by uh, things not going well. And so this is just, yeah, I'm, I'm sitting with this. How much do I, how much do I take away from them, their opportunity for mistakes and to figure things out on their own because I'm wanting for them to succeed and, um, and, and have success with whatever the, um, the goal of the project is but is that the big success? I think it's a mix. I, I think that given you've got 12 students and you're all on this adventure, there's plenty of opportunity for enough to go wrong that there's going to be uh, those learning uh, opportunities, you know, lessons learned. 
one of the tools we would also use uh, was a set of four questions and they it would always be in whatever we're doing, like have your brain turned on. And, you know, you can do a, a, a talk before you go out onto the adventure. These are the, the challenges or hazards we may be facing. And, and these are the things that we can do to make them less hazardous or less likely to go wrong. And you have that talk and it's, it's like a checklist. It's like meaningless until you're in that situation. Uh, and then, right. then you can point to that and say, th then you connect the two. You know, then it becomes meaningful. Oh, all right. You know, and it sucks for one dude and like 11 other people are like, oh, you know, mana, mana from heaven. Um, but the four questions were, what am I about to do? What could go wrong? What can I do to make it less likely to go wrong? And then how have I communicated that to other people? And, it, and it, it's, again, this yeah. sort of like everyone's watching out for each other. It's not that I'm just watching out for myself or I'm only doing the right thing when the boss is around or, you know, like that. It's that we're, we're responsible for ourselves and each other and whatever the situation is. What am I about to do? What could go wrong or what's the worst thing that could happen even? Um, but just what could go wrong? What can I do to make it better? And how have I communicated that? Those four things. Yeah. In, in every single situation. Yeah, that's excellent. Yeah. Yeah, that's excellent. Yeah, um, we haven't sat down to do a processing of that experience. Um, and uh, I'm thinking maybe we'll do that tomorrow morning because uh, there's certainly some really rich learning curves to be uh, to be navigated here through that. Mm -hmm. And that you're right, man. It's like when we make a mistake, when we encounter a hardship, there's that's like a rich opportunity to learn so much, you know, at a cost, but man, you know, you'll learn from that. Yeah. 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 I'm, I'm not looking at it as being um, something that was negative or bad or wrong. Um, the, uh, and I don't really look at life that way. I don't, I don't tend to look at things in the black and white of right and wrong, but there are those things that um, are, that have particularly good um, learning potential if we understand them clearly and that will help us to move forward in whatever it is that we desire most. Mm -hmm. So this, in many ways, the experiences that we had on this trip were great. Um, you know, nobody, nobody got hurt. Um, you know, for me, like the, the very minor burns, it's not an issue for me. And, and I always take injury as part of my learning curve. Mm -hmm. It's just my body. That's got a lesson for me, um, to learn. And, uh, you know, so a little bit of gear that can be replaced and some exhaustion. Um, but wow, there's so much there for us to really mine for the information. And so we could say that, wow, this was this was so good. This was a gift for us moving forwards so that um, the next time we have a different experience. This brings to mind uh, what I learned in Boy Scouts, which as much as I, I didn't quite like that experience, I did learn a lot. And the, most commonly, uh, you may get an injury at the end of a hike because you're tired, yes, but also you're nearing home. And so you kind of start to go on autopilot a little bit. You're, mm, you're thinking ahead. Right. And then you twist your yeah. ankle and that's going to lay you up for a long time. Yep. Yeah. 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 Fascinating. Yep. 
Hey, I wanted to um, talk a little bit about anger too. I feel yeah, like we're I was going to bring that up. Moment. Yeah, yeah, let's do it. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So, um, so we had uh, another student who had gone um, back with family for a bit, and um, and in this particular student's family, they're you know they're not they're not into wearing masks, um, and I'm just. It, it appears as though they don't really um, take COVID as something that's serious or real. And, you know, we've got like 15 people that are here. So for this reluctant community, we have very clear agreements around how we are managing um, the safety of the community around COVID. And, um, and one of those is that if you go away from our group and you um, expose yourself potentially to COVID, um, so you're you're not maintaining um, uh, the appropriate distance, you're not wearing masks, uh, yada yada. Then when you come back, you go into a quarantine period, and so you need to sleep separate from everyone else and wear a mask when you are in any of the, the communal spaces, which is mm -hmm. the earth lodge and the kitchen here. And so this individual comes back during the time that um, some of us are out on this trip. And, um, and as we are uh, coming, you know, ending our trip and getting ready to come back, I get a, a message that um, this individual is refusing to wear a mask and says that uh, nobody can, can tell him that he has to, um, and the only person that he'll listen to is Tom. And so, um, <laughs> so I, when, I, when I show up, I'm like, hey, what's going on? And he says, um, yeah, I don't believe in mask wearing. And, I'm, and I said, okay, well, that's fine. But we as a community, we have agreements around this. And he says, well, this is not my community. This is my school. And I said, you are here as a part of a group. And you are not here as an individual, which is separate from the group. If you wanted to do that, then maybe you could sleep and do everything separate from everyone else. And then that's fine if you don't want to wear a mask. But if you're wanting to be integrated with, to hang out around the rest of the people in the group, we have community agreements and you absolutely need to follow those agreements. And he says, well, you know, um, I never agreed to it. And I said, we had these discussions with everyone sitting together. And at the end, I said, is everyone in agreement? Does anybody have anything about this that they disagree with? And, you know, um, speak up now. All right, is everybody in agreement? And, you know, everybody was speaking kind of at the same time. I did not feel like I needed to go person by person and have each person individually say, yes, I agree to this specific thing you know, we're all living together yeah. um, and we need to be able to trust each other. And he said, well, I never, I never agreed. And I only agree to things that I specifically state 
I agree to this. And I said, you know, um, so that's where I, that's when I got angry. Mm-hmm. And um, anger has been a really long journey for me. Like I, I would, when I was a, a young child, when people would tease me, I would sort of black out almost into, um, into a rage. And um, so I, I definitely have a long history of anger associated with violence. And it's been a journey for me to come to a um, um, come to an authentic um, an authentic expression of anger, so that I'm allowing the anger to flow through me because it's there, because it has a place, because it's valid. But I'm not allowing the anger to, or there there is no part of me that authentically is moving that anger into physical violence. But I definitely raised my voice and I definitely spoke with anger and I definitely told him, fuck you. And, um, and what he had done is he essentially said that, um, that it's okay to willfully, intentionally mislead me and the rest of his community and that somehow that's an ethical leg to stand on. Um, and I got angry because this is someone who, this has been going on for months. For months, he's been lying to me and the rest of the community. Um, mm. And, you know, it finally came out because here was where the rubber met the road. He finally left and, um, and walked around with people without a mask on, hung out with family and yada, yada. And now he was faced with, all right, here's our agreement. And he's, and I said, you know, this is, this is just the biggest fuck you that you are saying to me and everyone else here. And you're saying that you don't care. And that, that hurt. Um, I felt hurt as a result of that. Um, and that's where the anger came from. Um, and I'm, I'm, totally cool with me having gotten angry, me having yelled at him, me swearing at him. And I'm hoping that it made enough of an impression on him that um, he doesn't have the situation sometime down the line, um, perhaps with a girlfriend, where he's saying to her that, um, no, I never explicitly agreed to this, but I intentionally misled you. And that that's okay, because that's never going to fly in any kind of a relationship. Yeah, I mean, there's a, that living at that, living within sort of a hall of mirrors and and smoke and mirrors and, and trickery is going to cause anyone that is engaging in that, uh, their own sorrow eventually. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I used to do it. You know, I, I totally used to do that. I used to be someone who, um, uh, even now I tend to be an extremely internal person and communication is something that I keep working on, keep learning about, um, keep getting better at. And there are things that in my head I didn't agree about and did not intend to follow and did not speak out about 
and allowed that other person to proceed with a delusion because it was easier. Um, and somehow, you know, in my head, I wasn't being dishonest because I wasn't breaking my word. I never gave it, but I wasn't, I wasn't equating intentionally misleading someone with lying and they are equated. That's the same thing. So what are you wondering about? Was it justifiable to get angry? That's an experience in the moment for sure. And I like that you recognize there's a purpose for this feeling and to not hold on to it, but to let it flow, but not to let it rage out of control. For me, I also have, uh, you know, I had a temper when I was a kid. I, I broke the railing on our stairs one time. I hit it. I was so mad. And I know that I still, you know, I had like a pretty dark, difficult childhood for quite a while. A friend of mine the other day suggested that I, I think of some good childhood memories and that was really difficult to do. <laughs> um, and so there was, <laughs> there was conditioning there. Uh, and it sounded like you had some of the same that, you know, through being mistreated by others, I have a, a real reluctance to allow that to happen again. What I found myself doing uh, now in the best cases is to just call it out when it happens, as soon as I see it plainly. And the person may deny it, but they also discontinue this behavior that I was calling them out on. Oh, I wasn't, I wasn't being a bully. Um, you know, okay. And, you know, fair enough, sure, whatever, I'm not going to press you on it. Uh, this did happen. This is how I observed it. This is how it seemed. And then it, it would stop. Or in another case, uh, saying you're playing a game that has your own rules where, you know, everyone else is playing in it. They don't know it. And it's designed for you to win. And I'm just not going to play that game. And that's kind of a little eye-opener for some people to realize, holy shit, I am playing a game and everyone's in it and it's my own rules designed for me to win. And is that really what I want to be doing? Um, but, you know, every individual situation is going to have its own right action in the moment. So, you know, uh, you're the one that, you know, it's most important to know, like, did that, did the way the anger came out, uh, though you're cool with it, if it happens again, is there, I, I face this challenge constantly, Chris, still in my life. If it happens again, how will I react? What is a better way that I want to be able to react? And it's, you know, a little by little by little kind of change that happens. And it's, and it's experimenting too, right? Like if I want to try out a behavior that I haven't done before, I'm not going to be used to it. I'm not going to be good at it. I'm not going to know how it feels or how exactly to do it, but I still want to try it. It seems that it, it, it yeah. somehow will always have like a, some, there'll be something negative from it. That's been my experience though, too. If I do flash in the pan with some anger emotion, it, it, I always wish I would have done something a little bit better. Even if I can say, you know, Hey, that was justified. I, I personally will always feel like, oh, I wish I would have been able to have different tools that I don't even know what they are to be able to have managed that in a better way. Yeah, yeah. You know, for me, it's really just reflecting back on this long period of time in which I have really um, looked at anger and looked oh, at okay. um, no, looked at, just looked at my anger and um, and have been seeking to be authentic with it. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for me, um, it's, uh, you know, it's an intergenerational thing. Um, my dad, um, my dad would smash things when he got angry. Um, mm-hmm. He would throw things and he would smash things and he was big and he was scary to me uh, when he got that way. And my mom always said, well, if you think your dad is bad, you should have met his dad, you know, Mm -hmm. which everyone seemed to be in agreement was a a complete asshole. And when uh, when my dad turned 18, uh, his dad said, well, you're 18 now. I don't have to look after you. I want you out of the house and I never want to see you again. And, uh, and I don't think my dad ever saw his father again. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so my dad did a lot of work during his lifetime to get, get grips on his anger. And then he passed it down to me, you know, and, and then I had that anger where, you know, as a child, I, um, I threw a kid over two rows of desks. Um, I smashed a table. I bit a teacher, <laughs> you know, I, I was, um, I was out of control in some ways. Um, when I was 10 years old, I, uh, I got this, um, this sense, this understanding that when somebody was, um, when I went after and hurt somebody, I was also hurting the people that, that loved me. And I just, decided I wouldn't get angry anymore. And so I shut it down and then found that that emotion was connected to all of the other emotions. And so I didn't really feel much of anything for a while. Mm -hmm. And then it's been gradually like bringing that anger back in and bringing the other emotions in and seeking to really hold this broad spectrum of you know, the, the, the potential, the truth of being fully human, you know, to seek to be the whole human is to embrace the full spectrum of everything that it's possible, everything that we can feel and all of the, all of the pain and all of the joy. Um, so for me, looking back, you know, I'm, I'm now this most recent experience of anger. Um, that's, that for me was authentic. It was in the moment and I didn't try to repress it. I didn't judge it. I allowed it to be. Um, and, and it infused my, um, my, my, uh, my way of, of sharing this person's impact, the impact of their actions um and that was an authentic reflection that i gave back and that's valid that's just, that i feel like is is useful i feel like you know if this person in the future um has a different take on willfully uh misleading people then that's that's a gift you know to get that now and not to have to cause more suffering in the future as a result of this really misguided way of going through the world. As it's, um, yes, Ho- hopefully it, um, well, it will, it will stick. It will, it will have its place. It's an evolutionary continuum within the, you know, the intergenerational changes. And I, I'd say that that's a successful direction that you're heading in. Yeah. You know, and then we, <laughs> we sort of come back to, um, 
what are we doing here? You know, a year long immersion program, learning stone age skills and uh, community and connection and natural principles, and then going on this big adventure at the end. Um, but really it's just an opportunity to learn life. You know, the same thing is that we, we learn life by parenting a, a, a little child or raising a dog or going to work or, or um, reading a book, you know, it's all of these, all of these ways in which we are, um, in which we are mirrored back to ourselves and in which we become mirrors to others so that we can become authentically whole. Yes, Chris. Yes. That kind of leadership when, when there's that recognition that we are all giving each other the permission to, uh, see the, the behavior we're modeling and take it in and add it to our own behavior and learn from it, um, or, or learn what, what not to do, but it's that, that mirroring and that, that real leadership in this group, you're a leader and you will, you know, directly or indirectly be modeling how to cope with or, you know, manage different situations. And there is a place for a strong reaction in it. You know, it, each situation is an individual one, but um, it sounds to me like when you're putting at risk the health and well-being of the whole group for selfish reasons, that needs to be addressed effectively somehow. And that's a tool that you had at the moment. And I hope that that does work. And if it does uh, prevent further damage down the road, then yeah, that's a success for sure. Yeah, we shall see. <laughs> the journey continues. How long ago did that happen, that confrontation? Oh, let's see. That would have been, uh, I guess we're, I guess it was about five days ago four five days ago yeah. yeah so um so yeah and he um he's gone to um do his uh quarantine off property um and uh so he's he's set up well um tom was able to facilitate that for him and so he's you know he's got lots of time uh on his hands uh to think about things and and then we'll see you know we'll see when he comes back and did um, tom join in your believe... direction because he was looking for tom you know to give this instruction and not you um did, did tom join you in saying hey man like we got to do this for each other tom is in support of community agreements you know, he, he, and without he and I having a specific conversation, you know, of in exactly this kind of language, I think it's accurate to say that he recognizes that a community lives by its agreements and that, um, you know, uh, he or anybody else who, uh, if they chose to not live by those agreements, then it destabilizes the community and it, Really, the core thing is that, you know, like there's a safety aspect here with this person, but um, but perhaps even bigger is, and the reason that I'm really sticking with it, is it's about trust. You know, when we are, when we're in a year-long program and we then will be embarking on a 500-mile journey, Stone Age, um, 
absolutely everyone needs to be able to completely trust each other yeah because what happens if a canoe capsizes what happens if there's like not enough food which is going to be real and the opportunity is there for somebody to eat more um because nobody's looking um you know there's like there's so many different layers in which um selfishness or greed can find its expression and um you know and and then and then the group implodes then you know and uh, or another way is then we have another lesson <laughs> another yes, opportunity well, uh, for yeah. us to learn and grow and heal and become whole like yeah. you know if we don't learn our lesson the first time we learn it the second time or the third time or the fourth time it just will keep coming back but i would rather that we get it the first time and um uh, and that through these community agreements we do um shift and um and come to this level of of deep trust which i think is where most of us are um you know not having not having fully tested it you know like the test will really come when um when everyone's exhausted and um we're really hungry and um and then the opportunity to to be selfish um presents and we haven't really been tested that way yet um but for the ways in which we have been tested we're in a good space with this one interesting opportunity to 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 look at and to work on as a group you know how the universe comes in and gives you a assistance unlooked for once in a while unlooked for but needed those sorts of coincidences Old or stuff. synchronicities of <laughs> what yeah all, the, all time. the time, all the time. Yeah. Um, so, and I've been really experiencing that more lately and maybe it has coincided with my intentional interest in enabling my heart to be part of my compass work, um, compass works. So I believe that this is a space with some dissonance, right? Not sure where it's going to go, what the right solution yeah. is. Uh, but there is yeah. the, I think the promise of the solution that will naturally present itself in a way that you, you couldn't have planned or made happen um, just to, to stick with the problem long enough and to keep, keep your brain on and keep paying attention and keep your heart in the right place that uh, there will be a flow here. And it, it may, what my experience has been is that it, it comes unexpected, uh, but it's just the right thing at the right time. So I, I hope that that's what, what we are talking about in another conversation coming up, how this, happen to uh, find its way around the bend. Yeah, yeah. You know, in this particular case, it's really present for me, the question, what does love look like? You know, does love look like um, going along with things, trying to sweep things under the rug, making things easy? Does love look like being a hard ass and sticking by the rules and, um, in offering no opportunity to um, to really discuss and get the other person's perspective, um, does love look like sitting down as a community and talking things through? Um, you know, like there's a there is a path of love which walks its way through this forest of of ideas and approaches, and and in that. In that is so much growth, so much, um, so much that I need to learn, you know, 
so much that everyone here can benefit from. And so that's, you know, the cognitive dissonance. That's the question that I'm holding. That's the right way to be, man. If you hold yourself open to learning that, you it, it will come about and your piece of the puzzle will find its right place. And in doing so, will help the other pieces to find their places too. Yeah, yeah, I believe that. We'll do our best. <laughs> Sorry about the, the noise before. My feet are really sore um, from walking through the forest. So my dogs are barking. Yuck, 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 yuck. Uh, um, no, no worries. <laughs> yeah, this dog, um, he can be really wild and test my, uh, my patience after a while of just constant barking and pulling and chasing after joggers and skiers and bikers uh, and other dogs like, you know, I, and he doesn't, at that point, he's a wild dog, like a wildness takes over and he's not paying attention. And it is a magnificent challenge to find the patience to sit with him and just demonstrate to him calm. Like this is what we do right now is just calm. It's time to be calm, calm, mm. calm, and like rub his mm -hmm. chest, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and that, and that yeah, does work, I, but it's, I got to find I, that in myself first. Yeah, I love how, um, I love how dogs and their owners tend to converge. You know, they, they can end up being so similar. It's usually that way, that there's some synergy that brings them together. And you can see like, Oh, the very high strung kind of a person. And here's their neurotic little dog. Uh -huh. um, and, and how, yeah, your, your dog is your own personal little guru. They're just um, opening up those pathways for you to have your own education. Yeah. And he, and you've got, got a Heinz life. 57, right? Uh, it's, I don't know what that is except for a ketchup. <laughs> oh oh yeah he's a mixed breed right, right. he's he's a mixed breed yeah he's he's yeah, three different he's kinds he's a australian shepherd german shepherd and border collie so he's really gung-ho about being triggered by moving things and wanting to go after that foster dog he's a rescue dog um, with an unknown history so we've had him for about five or six weeks uh i don't know what his past has been um and so it's like figuring out where it goes to and then trying to sell some in charge of him your, he's not allowed your, to socialize okay um he's he has restrictions on him because of the place where he, he comes from the rescue facility where he's not allowed to socialize with other dogs or people and i think that's tough on him man like all he's got Ooh. is us my wife and i and i think he'd love to interact with other dogs but we cannot allow it um and that must suck like that's got to be so I, I I just would so much love for him to be able to play with other dogs. And I think half the time he's barking, he is excited and wants to meet the dog and can't figure out why it's in there. He's such a smart dog. He's fantastic. Uh, yeah. I, I'm, I'm very grateful for his company and his, his guruship. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's a really interesting thing to not be allowing the dog to socialize with other dogs. And yeah. I don't know how that's going to work out in a positive way. I think at some point you're going to have a harder journey of socializing a dog that doesn't have the skill set. Yeah. If he was with us forever, I'd be socializing him for sure. Um, but he's just with us until he's adopted. So hopefully whoever adopts him uh, is able to give him those opportunities for socialization. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. One dog after the next. Right. Right. Huh. 
Okay. Interesting. Well, <laughs> uh, we're, we're right up uh, on two hours and, uh, man, I, this was all right, a really this good conversation. Good. Yeah. Loved it. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much, Ken. It's always a pleasure chatting with you. Likewise. And somewhere around the next full moon, we'll connect again and, um, yeah, put it out at the next Tuesday, the following Tuesday. All right, Chris, um, love and light to you and your whole community. And, uh, yeah, can't wait to talk right. to you again. All right. Thank you so much, Ken. Much love to you too. Likewise. All right. Bye for now. Bye. Bye for now. So thanks again, Chris Moraski, for another great conversation. Apologies for the technical foibles uh, that cropped up here and there. Um, a bit, a bit humorous. And uh, thankfully, we were able to complete the conversation for each of us having our our individual technical difficulties. Um, before we go, just a, a reminder to especially upon reflection of all these things we talked about in terms of our understanding or misunderstanding of ourselves or others um, have forgiveness uh, and and find that place of stillness to sort of resolve things in a clearer way as best you can with the faculties that we have uh, as a living being a part of this community this infinite universe this present moment to find that stillness and and find clarity there and certainly accept yourself in this present moment and accept the other that you may be encountering at this moment or any other as they are as this moment is and if you can be there with love or if whatever is needed for that particular moment try to be present with it and don't um not don't i don't like that word but just maintain presence and love forgive accept and hopefully gradually we continue to evolve on this continuum towards better understanding and togetherness and realize an effective, successful, happy, healthy, prosperous community at large beyond humanity to our entire planet and galaxy and beyond. So love yourselves and love each other. Be present. I love you. I'm so grateful that you're here. And if you're ever moved with any episode to share it with anyone you know, because you think it's topically interesting to them, it has a vibe, uh, it's interesting to you, you want to share, it's sharing that candle one at a time to bring some light, some warmth, some interest, some reflection. Uh, yeah, that's the community spirit there. Okay, love to you all. Thanks for being here again. Until next time, from All One Time Live, bye for now. <laughs>